Hello and welcome to Two Old Chuffs, A Tale of Two Hospices. I'm Tamsin Thomas. And I'm Gina Stone. And we like doing our podcast to explore a range of different issues, some very relevant to the care that we offer and some relevant to the ways in which we fund that care. But today we're going to talk about a subject which I particularly think is really, really important. Having uh, lost my father about a year ago, and you need to make all those pre-plans, and it is advanced care planning. And I'm delighted that we've got an expert in the room, so Gina and I don't have to guess what we're saying here. Gwendolyn Trasida, who is an occupational therapist with us at Cornwall Hospice Care. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tamsin. Thanks, Gina. Have you done something like this before? <laughs> no. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you're going you're gonna to be fine, because you know what you're talking about. Hopefully. We don't always. <laughs> Um, let's start at the beginning. What is advanced care planning? So the, the term advanced care planning is an umbrella term that um, includes several things that people can do to plan for the care they might need when they get more unwell towards the end of their life. And that would include things like um, lasting power of attorney, uh, where you can designate somebody to make decisions on your behalf if you can't do that. Um, Things like advanced decision to refuse treatment when people are definitely, um, you know, have a defined illness and potential treatments available. They might have strong feelings about what they want and don't want. And also people can write a statement of choices and preferences, which is a looser document where they can write all sorts of things, you know, how they like their coffee or, you know, things that are meaningful to them, things that they don't want. They can put it all in that document for the teams who look after them to know them better. And then there's other things people can do to plan for, you know, maybe later planning for their death, for example. I can see the value of that, but that's a really tricky thing to start writing down, isn't it? It is a very tricky thing. It's not something people generally want to do, you know, but if you think about it, you know, we plan our births to the end degree, you know, pregnant women have a very detailed birth plan and we all know we're going to die someday but somehow we fail to plan for that. And sadly, in my experience at the hospice, the people you haven't planned for it and where the families are not au fait with what the person's wishes are, um, that's where it becomes really difficult and more painful emotionally. Whereas if you can have that conversation beforehand and establish those things beforehand, you can park it then, it's done. You don't need to revisit it if you don't want to. But you've when, had that discussion. When, when would you start that conversation? I, I, I'd be terrified that someone might, if I said, have you started your planning for when yeah. you die? That they might say, oh, do you know something I don't? <laughs> do you know? Well, in my personal opinion, everybody should be doing it. Um, I'm not ill. I'm a mother of two children, though. And certainly there's things that I'm putting in place to make sure that um, my family knows what I want um, and to make sure that my children are protected and covered and I've already had some thoughts about that and discussions with my family. Um, but also when people are ill, um, it's important that they put these things in place and have those conversations because um, then people know where they're at. So the way to start the conversations, the thing is quite often patients want to have those conversations but may not feel comfortable and may not know who to ask to have those conversations. And there's research that shows that actually they might not even ask the doctor because they're worried about 
embarrassing the doctor or it's not something you know that the doctor should be worrying about and then they're not going to want to burden their family members and that research actually showed that the, most of those people said they would like that conversation offered and I think that's where it's important um, and it's about finding the words to do that you know it's not about shall we plan for your end of life today it's more along the lines of okay have, have you had any thoughts about you know, how you might want to, to deal with things, you know, if you become more unwell. And, and that can be a starting point. I really echo that, Gwendolyn, because um, my husband and I, we've just had cause to revisit our wills. And actually, that brought up the very conversation about, well, actually, okay, we're talking about wills and, and what's going where when we die, but also it brought up things like, um, you know, what, what music we might want at our funeral um, and actually, you know, whether we want to be buried or cremated, where we want to be. Um, and also, you know, those, those little things that actually, um, as somebody who's also, um, you know, kind of had a, had a bereavement in recent years, you feel really pleased that you've done the best you can for the patient that's died because they've, they've written it down and, and you know exactly that's what they would have wanted. Mm. Whereas I think where things are left open a little bit, you kind of think, well, I'm not quite sure whether this is what they would have wanted or that is. But yeah. actually that peace of mind into bereavement, so when people are, are, you know, kind of dealing with after death of a loved one, they know they've done the right thing, which I think is hugely powerful. It's really important. And I've, ha I've heard that where, where, you know, adult children have been left having to make decisions yeah. about funerals for a parent and maybe not all the siblings agreeing with what needs to be done, and that can be really traumatic, and then second-guessing the person and thinking, is that what they would have wanted? And, and another, you know, adult children saying, well, you know, she had a plan, she knew what, we, what she wanted, it was all done in detail, and, you know, it was amazing because we know we organised what she wanted, and that makes a big difference to how people grieve. It really does help. Uh, with the grieving process afterwards. I was um, quite amused by, we've had a lot in the news, haven't we, about um, Captain Tom yes. when he died, and I was um, delighted to see that he'd made arrangements for his funeral, even down to what the content of the sandwiches were going to be <laughs> at the wake, which I thought was fantastic. And you just think, actually, some people really do take it to that yes. extreme, don't Absolutely. they? Absolutely. You've experienced I, 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 I did. When, I, when we did our will, I yeah. said to the solicitor, look, I'm, I feel very strongly about what I want at my funeral, and none of my family will want necessarily <laughs> to do this, so can I write it down and put it as a, a sheet in the, in the will? And she said, absolutely. Mm. So I've chosen the music, what the activities, everything. And I learned that from my folks because yes. they did that. And, and you know, especially when my mum died and she was very religious and we all went, um, how does this work? Not only had she written it down in her will, she'd given the local vicar the instructions. So he came in and went, hey, you've got nothing to worry about. It's, I've got all the details yeah. here. Yeah. So you're right, that, that's Usually. even a little thing like that is important. Because yeah. it's a lot to organise, isn't it? So yeah. if you're already grieving, you're going through this trauma of losing a loved one, and then you've got to organise all these things and second-guess that person. If it's already done, you know that you're doing the right thing. And I think that... Have you seen that advert recently for organ donation? With, with the young man, and he's there's lots of bits of film of his dad, and he's talks yes. about him being a joker and yes. all that. 
and he said, I knew what he liked to eat, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then at the end he says, but when they asked me if, about his organ donation, yeah. I didn't know. And I think that's, like, see, it's stuck in my mind. It's mm. a very powerful message. Yeah. And it's because we don't like to talk about death. It's still a taboo subject. You know, when you think in the 40s and 50s, it was normal when you, when you uh, lost a family member that they would stay at, at home and, you, you know, everybody would come and sit around them. And now people don't know what end of life looks like. They don't know what what they can do, what their options are in terms of dealing with with the person's body afterwards. And it's all this big scary thing that's been taken over by organisations. Will COVID change that? Because there's been so much death that we've had to talk about it a bit like the war. I think we're talking about it more. Yeah. We had already started talking about it a little bit more, I think. Um... The thing with COVID is I think sometimes it develops so quickly, it doesn't give people that chance to have those conversations. And also because of the measures that they put in place for um, to, to prevent staff catching the illness and, and the, the limits on visiting, for example, I think that makes that really traumatic because there's a lot of elements of somebody's advanced care plan that you can't actually put in place because of you know protecting people from the virus. And I think that's been quite traumatic and it, it, and it has, it, it's, um, it's affected very much, isn't it, how we have funerals. So when you're only having, you know, six people at a funeral and, you know, you, you kind of can't hug people in the same way or mm -hmm. sit next to people and offer that support that you would. That's right. I think that does affect people and I think it's really important that actually we remember that as, as mm -hmm. part of that bereavement mm -hmm. going, going forward. Yeah. But I, I, you know, I also think it's, um, you know, those numbers that we've had over the last year on those charts, um, that we've seen on the television, you know, it's it's really important that that we keep remembering that there are, you know, big families behind those numbers who are, you know, all, all affected. Absolutely. So I think I think you know I think it has made us think more about it, um, because I think, you know, we've never had anything before, have we, on the mm. on the on the national news yeah. to say how many people die in the in the UK on a daily basis. Um, so I think it has brought it to the fore, mm -hmm. and I just hope that from that we can start learning to have those conversations yeah. about preparing, because Absolutely. actually that for me is, is the important bit. And, and also I think it links with your earlier question about who should be doing it. You know, COVID was fairly not, it's fairly non-discriminatory in terms of who, it, who it, it affects. And actually if you haven't had any thoughts at all about what you might want, and you end up on a ventilator and you're unable to communicate what your wishes would be have you put things in place have you had conversations with your family about what you would and wouldn't want and that's where advanced care planning really comes into its own if you've already done that if you've got your lasting power of attorney if you've had those conversations people can support you in, you know appropriately then which kind of suggests sooner rather than later, yes. rather than leaving it until a person is absolutely. very elderly or, yeah, or whatever. Absolutely. You could be run over by a bus tomorrow. So oh, thank you. Where what's... are we going with this conversation? How does your family cope with having to make massive decisions if, you've, you know, if you have, for example, had a significant road traffic accident and you are unconscious in the hospital and you've not had those conversations around organisation about what you might want, you know, what's what your what are your your central values that are gonna guide how you would want to be treated, whether you'd want to be resuscitated, all these things. It's really hard to second guess if you've not had those conversations.
So the really important point then, isn't it, is absolutely opening up those conversations yes. and yes. taking the opportunity yes. and just maybe asking that what feels like a difficult question to start leading mm, into the river. Absolutely. I think something that's very clear is advanced care planning is not... It's not like your will, for example, which is one solid document, and you might look at it every five or ten years. An advanced care plan is more fluid than that, and, and the essence of it really is about conversations. And um, recording it is great because then we, you know, we know on paper what it's like, but actually the important bit is communication and making sure people know what your wishes are. Um, and, and, you know, trying to work out with the medical team, if you are a person who already has an illness, or with your family and close ones, what it is you want. You know, do, do you want to look at making a decision ahead of time to refuse this or this or that treatment in particular circumstances, which would be an advanced decision to refuse treatment? Or would you rather have a family member that you trust make those decisions on your behalf through a lasting power of attorney? So it's about having those conversations um, and, you know, the, the, the statement of choices and preferences kind of adds colour to that with more like care. And I think um, also doing a bit of research maybe about yes. what you need to address. Yep. Um, if I just use an example, my dad had to have uh, heart surgery, but um, he, he was taken poorly ahead of the surgery. We went into Derriford A&E at the same time as a car accident. So it was all, all hell breaking loose, really, and, and Dad was lying there, and the, the, the doctor came in and said, now, do we resuscitate you if we need to give you your heart surgery now? <laughs> Dad looked at him and said, what? I'm, I'm in a hospital, of course you resuscitate me, I'm, I'm here to be helped. And there was a look of complete bewilderment, and uh, we then realised that's a key question you need to talk about, and I'll give Derriford their credit. In the middle of that whole scenario, they sent someone in to help us have the conversation, but it was the wrong time, really. Mm. But I wouldn't have known to ask that before. I never realised that that could be something that, that it could be a decision. Yes. In, longer down the line, it was yeah. really useful to do. But it's how do you find the questions you need to address mm. if, you, if you've not been ill or anything or spoken to a doctor. I guess it's... Websites, research? Yes, I mean, there's, there, there, there is information out there on, on websites. Um, it's um, potentially talking to a doctor about it. Um, if you can access a doctor, particularly if you don't have a medical condition. You know, pe people, people are quite au fait with having a will and um, why it's important, although still a lot of people don't do that. Um, and people are also more au fait with lasting powers of attorney for finance and property but they quite often forget the other side of it. The side, the side that's not so nice to look at and, okay, what if I can't make those decisions for myself? So it's about, it's about having open conversations and it's not an easy thing to do, but quite often I find in the hospice that the, the, the patients and families who, who cope with the whole experience of dying the best are the families where there is open conversation. Anybody knows where the patient is at in their disease process and everybody knows where the patient is at in terms of what they want. And the families where people try and protect each other um, and not say things because they don't want to upset them, those tend to be the families where there's more emotional 
um, distress and trauma um, through the whole process. You're listening to Two Old Chuffs, A Tale of Two Hospices, and we're talking with Gwendolyn Trasida, who is one of our occupational therapists. So Gwendolyn, how do we spread the word? How do we start to get more people to think about advanced care planning? That's an interesting one, it's isn't it? It's a big question, actually. It is realize. a big question. So it certainly is something that I do within my work um, with people who come to our neighbourhood hubs, uh, which is a service that we offer to patients who face um, you know, a palliative or terminal illness. And, and that's always a conversation that I would um, offer to people. Um, I, I think a big element of it is about training and empowering doctors to have those conversations. Um, GPs, unfortunately, don't have a lot of time, so that can be quite difficult. But it's about making sure the professionals are all aware of actually what is available um, and, and where to signpost their patients. And I think it's about, you know, there's more and more going on out there. You've got death cafes nowadays where, you know, you can go and have a coffee and have an open conversation about death and dying. Um, and there's far more laughter than people would imagine in those places. <laughs> um, but it's, a, you know, it, it is a big question. It's a difficult one. I think social media can play a big role in that. Certainly on my personal account, you know, I share a lot of um, posts around that topic. But it's about what people choose to to engage in. And I think it's... You know, if somebody wants to have that conversation with you, either for themselves or for you, it's about trying not to shy away from that conversation. It's take a deep breath and go, okay, let's see where that takes us. And a little chunk at a time. I think, I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's just about what people can manage. It doesn't have to be, well, Tuesday evening at four o'clock. Absolutely. Sit down and we'll yeah. do it in half an hour. Yeah. It, it's actually getting to know people yeah. and... Um, and, and also, it, I think, you know, it's hugely important to have that conversation with your loved ones to say, actually, this is really important yeah. to me. Yeah. And I would really like you to honour this and mm. to, you know, know where the document is. But also, um, you know, it's, it's, that, it's that deeper conversation, isn't it? I think, Absolutely. With your family and friends. Absolutely. And I think sometimes, you know, you were talking about this advert about organ donation, and I yeah. think that can prompt the conversation. You know, we're sat on the sofa watching the telly and this advert pops up and it's like, Actually, what do you want to do with your organs? And that might lead to more conversations. And it, and it's not it's about not being afraid about where it where it leads because once the conversation's been had, you don't necessarily need to go back on it if you don't want to. You've got to remember it though, and maybe that brings us back to that formalisation. Yes, it. yes, you're right, and I, and I think it's. It's about not being scared of documentation, I think. You know, the, in, in those three main documents I mentioned in advanced care planning, two really are proper official documents. So an advanced decision to refuse treatment could be written on a blank piece of paper but does need particular wording, and it is a legally binding document. So if a person says, I don't want antibiotics at the end of my life, or, or you know, in this scenario, that's it. The team has to respect that. Similarly, lasting power of attorney is a legal document. You have to register it um, and then it activates when, when you're not able to make decisions for yourself. However, you know, you could write a statement of choices and, and preferences, which is not a legally binding document in any way, 
but certainly records what your wishes are for your family as well as for the medical team who looks after you. It depends on how much information somebody wants to put in that document, whether they only have three, four key issues they want to put in there or whether they want to talk a lot about you know, how they take their coffee and um, they want a fluffy pillow and you know, whatever that might be that's important to them. And that, that's, you know, that can be a blank piece of paper. But there are organisations out there that, that do have forms that can prompt some ideas that you might not have thought about. You know, it's not an easy thing to, to do, to imagine yourself towards the end of your life and what you might think is important to you, but you, you might not have thought of sharing that because you don't think about it. So some documents out there on websites like um, Compassion in Dying and, you know, um, I think Age UK also has documents and we've got the Pass It On Before You Pass Away. So all those documents have little prompts in there of things that you might not have thought about, like, you know, you know who in your family you want to be kept informed and have complete open conversation with the medical team or is there anybody in your family you're estranged with that you don't want involved or, you know, pets or... All sorts of things um, that people don't necessarily think to write down on a document. See, that's interesting. I, I, I'd always thought organ donation is really important to tell yes. your family. And I've always thought it'd be important, say, if you want to be buried or cremated. Yes. Never thought about pets. But that's that's uh, about also about the after. And I think the important bit is looking at the before somebody dies and how they are being cared for and where they are being cared for. <clears throat> Some people might feel very strongly they want to die at home. Other people want to die in the hospice. A lot of people change their mind once they're in the hospice and they wanted to die at home and actually think, hmm, the hospice is actually quite nice. Um, so it's it's about, and that's why it's an open plan. That's why it's a movable plan. And it's about, you know, looking at how do I want to be cared for in those last months, weeks, days. You know, my colleagues know that I'll come into the hospice if I possibly can and they need to paint my toenails red and I want fluffy socks because I don't like cold feet. They know that. <laughs> it's those little things that might be important to you or spiritually important to you. Um, people who want to be outdoors as much as possible, people who want their family near them at the last moment. Um, it's all these little things or that seem very little but actually are big and important things to the person that can be put in a document like that. And, and who uh, is there if the family find what the person's written down a challenge to them? So perhaps if the person, for instance, says, please don't put me into care, but the family are at a point where that is the only option mm. they, that they can see. Yeah. Who, who, I want to say, who referees that? And that's an awful term, but... It's not, it's not about refereeing because it's usually about trying to come to a decision together. In a situation like this where somebody is poorly, any decision will be a compromise. Nothing will ever be perfect for one, for one party, however hard we try. It's always a compromise of some kind. And it's about, yes, somebody might have said all their life, I definitely don't want to go in the care home. But once they get to that stage of being more unwell, they might be living on their own. They might decide, actually, I don't want to die at home because I don't want to leave my partner with a house where I've died because I think that would be traumatic. Things like that. So the person themselves might gradually, through conversations and understanding of the ins and outs of, okay, 
If we get you home, this is what it's going to look like. Sometimes people struggle to portray themselves back at home with their new abilities, which are often less than they were. It might mean if you go home, you might need to be in bed all the time because the lounge is tiny and we can't do this, this and that. And, and somebody who's got difficult access to that, that's the occupational therapist talking now, but if you've got difficult access to your home, for example, you, you can be essentially prisoner in your, home, in your own home if you can't manage that access and it can't be adapted in whatever way you need. Being in a residential home or nursing home might actually give you more freedom in some ways. So it's about having conversations as a team. So you'll have the, the medical teams, the doctors can be there to give the patient and the family the information that they need, but also the information that they want. Not everybody wants to know the ins and outs of how long they've got, but the medical team can have those conversations and, and the nursing team about what care needs that person might have. And then you've got therapy, you know, physiotherapy and occupational therapy comes into that conversation, bringing information around, okay, but this is what it looks like at home. So those are the challenges we've got at home. So in order to get you home, those are the, the compromise we need to make. But if you go into a nursing home, those are the compromises. So what are you willing to compromise on? So, and it's having a conversation with everybody. The difficulty is where for example, you have somebody who's lost the ability to make that decision, either because there is maybe um, a cognitive impairment like dementia, for example, or they've got cancer in their brain, um, and then they can't make that decision. And you end up with this historical wish not to be in the care home versus the family's needs. And it's that's where it's left to a best interest decision with the medical team and the, the multidisciplinary team, so all the different professionals involved, having a meeting with the family, trying to understand the person as best as possible and making a decision based on their best interest. It's powerful stuff, but it's just so important, isn't it? I, I can't see how people wouldn't do this. but. I still wonder how we encourage people that this should be part of everyday conversation. Mm. I agree, it's really important to do. And I think it's about talking to people, you know, for, for, for us as individuals to open that conversation with friends and loved ones. Now, have you ever, have you ever thought about, you know, what might happen at the end? Um, and, and some people are like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. And, you know, we, can, we might be able to talk around it a little bit. And other people are like, oh, no, actually, that might be an interesting thing to talk about. It's about not being scared of that conversation. And I think sometimes, uh, you know, you've mentioned social media and you've mentioned, you know, television and, and programmes and soaps. Yes. And, and it's often that which prompts the conversation, well, actually, what would we do if that happened yes. to us? Yes, yeah. Um, so, you, you, you know, there, there are opportunities, but I think it, it is being a bit brave, isn't it, really? Yes, and taking it is. that first step. But you're right, I mean, soaps have tackled very difficult topics over the years, and that's certainly one topic that could be well covered in, in that, that format. And perhaps it is down to people like you, Gwendolyn, like you, Gina, who work in an area of, of, that is about end of life, yeah. trying to spread that word too, isn't it? So mm. Dying Matters Week is yes. important. Perfect, yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. The, the difficulty is we're... 
or selling, for want of a better word, something that people don't really want. People don't really want to talk about death. People are still petrified of the hospice until they come in and within an hour or two they go, what was I so worried about? <laughs> because, you know, we provide really, really good care here and it's a nice light environment, there's lots of laughter and we, we you know, there's a lot of staff and volunteers to support the patient and their family. So it's about breaking down those barriers, but breaking down those assumptions. A lot of people think the hospice is only for cancer patients, which it's not. It's for a lot of medical conditions. And a lot of people think that the hospice is a one-way street. Um, and that's not true either. About 50%, half of our patients will go home because they come in for symptom control, because they've got difficult symptoms in the community. And... Um, their medical team in the community are struggling to get on top of the symptoms because they're not seeing the patient all the time. Whereas they can come in here, they've got doctors and nurses every day who can keep tab of what the medication's doing. So about half of our patients go home. And I think that's really important to, to highlight to people that we're really not that a scary place at all. And I think also, you know, talking about um, preferences and end of life, it, it doesn't mean it's going to happen. Then it Absolutely. It do, which is, is often how I've yes. you know, pushed that subject before yeah. when we've, we've gone out kind of into the community to say what we do. Because you're, because you're right, it is actually quite a, um, a, a difficult dinner party topic when mm. people ask you what you do or where you work or if you're on a plane journey somewhere and you get talking to your neck. But actually, it's, it's being able to um, speak with confidence yes. about what you do and be able to, you know, really relate the difference mm. that actually your decision making can make. And Absolutely. Sometimes it's a very short time for professionals to get to know you um, at that end of life and the, and the more that your family know and that you've documented, the better people can give your care. Absolutely. And the earlier you do it, the more options you have as well. Um, and, and I know, that, you know, I'm, until I came and worked here, it's not really something I've thought about all that much, really. Um, but within a few months of being here, I became really aware of how important it is um, because some of our patients are actually quite young. And um, to go down the personal story, we were going on holiday to my parents with my husband and we were going to go over the Pyrenees and on the ferry to, to Spain, which is a long ferry journey. And just as we were planning this trip, we had a patient in one of the hospices who was dying and had young children and there were unresolved issues around who was going to be in charge of those children after that patient had died and I thought oh okay we're going on a ferry we're going up and down the mountain and I said to my husband I said I refuse to go to my own parents unless we've got a will in place in which we've written what we want for the children because you never know you know what could happen on a snowy mountain and um, I had to push him hard, but I was quite strong and I wasn't going to go. And so we did those wills. And now I know, at least it's written down, we both made the same choice of person to look after our kids if something happens to both of us. And that's put my mind at rest now. I know that if anything happens, that's sorted. And I think there is a hope amongst young people. I mean, just, just from my own experience, young people seem happier to talk about the subject of death and can be very matter-of-fact about it as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and they'll go online quite happily. They'll talk to people on social media about it. And I think 
when we put the Pass It On Before You Pass Away campaign together with the young farmers, they they almost accepted death. Maybe it's because they see it amongst animals, I don't yes. know, but they were quite happy to talk about mm -hmm. it. Um, and they kind of led conversations. I was quite surprised. So maybe... Maybe we have to get that conversation going to make sure they keep mm. it going in the future. I think you're right. I think with young farmers, certainly, they, they, they live and breathe life and death every day with the care of animals. And um, farmers are notoriously not very good at talking about their own um, emotions or, 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 or death or things like that. Um, but I think there's a lot more going around in the media. There has been a lot more, more over the last five, six years. So youngsters are more exposed to that now. There's a lot more openness around mental health issues, around suicide issues. So there's a lot more talk around those difficult topics, which have tended to be buried with previous generation. You know, we're talking more about um, uh, loss you know um loss of babies and and loss in pregnancy and and grief and all these things are being more talked about more openly and i think um it's harder for the older generation where those topics were a bit taboo and buried compared to the new generation who's kind of floating in that within social media um all the time absolutely it's, it's fascinating um I still think there's an element of morbidity in there, but actually there's a practicality to it, which is really important. And I keep going back to the man, you know, in the advert. He mm. says, that was the one question I couldn't answer. And he clearly is mortified that mm. he couldn't answer that one question. Mm. I think it's interesting you say there's an element of morbidity in there because we are all going to die. You know, if there's one thing for sure is we're not here permanently. So why not plan for it? There's nothing negative about it. It's just a fact of life. And like I said earlier, you know, we plan for birth to the nth degree. Why don't we do the same for something we know for certain is going to happen? And I think that word mobility is interesting. And I think, again, it starts from that, that topic having been made taboo. You know, you look at other cultures and there's cultures in, 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 in East Asia where I wouldn't want to do that here, but they actually take their dead out once a year and parade them, and they are still part of the family. Um, in Victorian times, they took family pictures with the person who had died before they were buried to make sure they had a family picture. Death was far more part of everyday life. It was more, it was normal, which it is. And interestingly, um, now, there's a growing number of people have photographers at funerals. Yes. Yeah. And I listened to an absolutely fascinating programme on Radio 4, probably a couple of years back now, about the growing demand for face masks to be done. Oh, So you masks, have a, yes. a, a cast yeah. of, of your yeah. loved one's face once they've gone. Yeah. Uh, and and the, apparently that, that's growing as well. So there we are, times are changing. I think people are reclaiming the funeral. It, it's got taken away, it got very, you know, Funeral directors take the body away and this is how it works and, you know, it's got to be black and, and more and more we've, we, we're seeing those funerals where you're asked to wear bright colours or particular types of clothing or, you know, don't, don't bring flowers, give money to this charity or, or whatever. So people are reclaiming those funerals, um, everything's becoming more individual um, and I think that's a really good thing. 
So just remind us the sort of places you could go if you wanted to do some research, you know, the organisations that you might tap into. So organisations you could tap into would be, um, certainly Compassion in Dying is a really good place to start. Um, we're about to um, launch new areas in our own website at Cornwall Hospice Care, one of which will have signposting websites for different topics and that will be covered in there as well. Age UK will have some elements um, available, Macmillan will have some elements available. If you put advanced care planning in a search engine, make sure you put UK because the rules are different in different countries, things will come up. But certainly Compassion in Dying will be a good one to start with. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Gwendolyn. It's, it's really been interesting and hopefully people will take the time to have a, a listen and a think and we may have triggered some conversations uh, that weren't being had before. Thank you very You're much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Two Old Chuffs, A Tale of Two Hospices.